The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer, W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, or this evening, won't be long before it's morning. Before we begin this evening, let's have a word of prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful that we have such a tremendous salvation that is based exclusively on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And at the moment that a person puts their faith alone in Christ alone, you give to us an infinite number of blessings and assets, spiritual blessings that are the foundation for the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. And among these assets are the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit, and His filling ministry, teaching us, and His ministry that he, whereby He takes the truth that we are taught and that enters into our soul and uses that to produce spiritual growth. Father, now as we continue our study on the foundations for living, that we might uh, learn to approach that abundant life which our Lord spoke of. We pray that God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells us and teaches us, would make these things real to us, that we may have a greater understanding and insight in how we go forward in our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We had started two weeks ago with a second basic series, as it were. This first was basics related to salvation ultimately. We started with God and the essence of God and ended up going through salvation and eternal security. After that, a person saved. So what do we do after we're saved? And I have begun by looking at basic spiritual skills. Basic spiritual skills are techniques that we are to develop in our Christian life that enable us to apply doctrine. They are basically a synthesis of many different things that the Bible teaches, but by looking at them in this way, we sort of summarize a lot of biblical teaching under these basic categories. And so we began by looking at the first one a few weeks ago, and that was just confession of sin. And we focused on that subject in terms of the uh, biblical teaching on cleansing, that in order for a believer to come into the presence of God, to enjoy the fellowship that we have with God, and for God the Holy Spirit to work in our life, we must be cleansed of sin. Pointed out that when we are saved, at that instant of faith alone in Christ alone, we are cleansed from all pre-salvation sin and positionally cleansed from all sin because of our unity with Jesus Christ at the instant of our salvation. However, as we go through life, we continue to commit sin. And so 
we are instructed to confess our sins, that is, to admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father. And at that instant, we, rec- we recover fellowship, the sanctifying or spiritual life-producing or growth-producing, growth-developing ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Uh, it comes back online, and we can then continue our spiritual advance or spiritual growth. Confession moves us from operating according to the sin nature, which just produces dead works, to operating according to the Holy Spirit who produces divine good or that which has eternal value. The next skill that we develop is learning how to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. And we covered that last time, finishing up with the fact that this is related to the ministry of His filling. Ephesians 5.18, we have a command to be filled by means of the Spirit. I pointed out that was a passive command. We simply are to receive this filling. We're not filled with the Spirit as the content of that filling, but the Holy Spirit Himself is filling us with the Word. I compared Ephesians 5.18 with Colossians 3.16 to point out those two Uh, aspects there that the filling by means of the Holy Spirit is related to letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within us. The consequences of both commands are the same. Ephesians 5.19 and following and Colossians 3.16b and following are identical. So that means that being filled by the Spirit and letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within us are related because as they work together, they produce in us the same results in our spiritual life and spiritual growth. But the command that is addressed most specifically to our volition in terms of an active voice mandate is the command in Galatians 5.16 to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. And I pointed out last time that as we talk about walking by the Spirit, we constantly run into a slight problem, a misinterpretation. Maybe it's miscommunication. I don't know which it is, but it's something that I've constantly had to deal with in my teaching over the years, and that is the problem of of what I would call incipient mysticism. And that is there's a tendency to think of the filling of the Spirit as control. And that word's been used a lot. Dr. Chafer used that word. Others have used that word. But the word control implies that the Holy Spirit sort of overrides our volition. So that, in that sense, it's not a good word because the, we don't just get into this state of walking by the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, and then we become sort of a spiritual zombie where the Holy Spirit takes over our volition so that the decisions we make and the actions we take are, are somehow uh, protected are in some sense uh, free from error by the Holy Spirit. And as long as we uh, are, are in right relationship with the Holy Spirit, everything's just going to be, be fine because He's controlling our life. That's not what we mean by control. It means that the sanctifying ministry of the Holy Spirit is now, or that, that sanctifying growth, that spiritual advance is now under His control so that He can produce growth in our lives. He's the one who produces growth, but he doesn't make the decisions to walk, to be filled, to apply, to think doctrine. That's up to us. And often I hear people say, well, I'm just going to, to, to make these decisions in life, and if I'm in right relationship to the Holy Spirit, then they're going to be okay. That's like saying, okay, it's not my responsibility to think. I'm just going to take my mind and put it into neutral, and as long as I've confessed my sins, everything's just going to be I'm going to be fine because I've committed it to the Holy Spirit. And it's just a, a, another way of, of uh, following the principles of the sin nature to avoid responsibility for thinking, for analysis, for understanding uh, the issues of life from a biblical framework. And this kind of incipient mysticism, when it's taken to further conclusions, ends up in the sort of inner light sort of thought that Christians have had and some Christian groups have had in the past that God gives, the Holy Spirit gives them an inner light so that you just sort of uh, get inside of yourself 
have a little meditation, a little naval contemplation, and somehow the Holy Spirit's going to uh, give you the decision that you need. And once again, it's that, that avoidance of personal responsibility. That's not what walking by the Spirit is. There is a clear objective path. As I pointed out last time, we are led by the Spirit. Any, if anything leads us, it's out in front and it's laying a course of action for us. And that leading is done through the objective Word of God. So that the Spirit of God and the Word of God always work together. You don't get away from the Word of God and say, Okay, I have a decision to make in life. Let me just pray about this and wait for the Holy Spirit to somehow move me so that I'm making, making the decision God wants me to make. That is mysticism. That's subjectivism. That's not any different from what you'll run into if you go to uh, some places. I did a, few, a number of years ago to Palmyra, New York. Palmyra, New York is located about 50 miles east of Rochester, and it's the birthplace of Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith was the founder of the Mormon Church. They don't like to be called that anymore. They want to be called just the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and they want to drop that, so they're just the Church of Jesus Christ. But that's another story. You go up to a place like that, any of the Mormon sites, and their tour guides, all your tour guides are missionaries. And their number one job is to recruit new members into the Mormon church. And so I had a lot of fun with this elderly man who was taking me around. And he, I asked him where he was from, and he was from down in Atlanta, and what his background was. And he said that he was from a certain large southern uh, denomination. And I happen to know that that is the largest group from which any and all, I mean, from which Mormons get their greatest number of converts. And I said, well, how do you know that any of this is true? He says, because I had the burning in the bosom. That's their phrase. He just, it's, it's what I call liver quiver. It's just, I knew, after I heard it, I went off into my closet or wherever, and I thought about it, and there was just this inner subjective light that told me it was true. But you never see that sort of methodology in the Scripture for making decisions, for discerning God's will, or for evaluating the circumstances of life. Over and over again, you have the mandate to think, to evaluate, to to focus on, to study, to concentrate, to evaluate, not to go off somewhere and wait for some sort of... uh, inner light, mystical, liver quiver thing to take place that is then identified with the Holy Spirit. That is pagan methodology. It is not biblical methodology. Biblical methodology is based on thought, being in right relationship with God the Holy Spirit through confession of sin, and then thought and knowing that as we think and analyze through the Scripture, God the Holy Spirit is, is at work. It's not overt, it's in and through the process. And the next step in that process, which is the next brick in the foundation for living, is the faith rest drill. I just love that term because the drill concept reminds us that it's something we have to practice over and over and over again. It's a drill. It's like when you were in the military perhaps, and you had to learn the manual of arms. And I remember when I was in ROTC, when I was in college, and the first year I was in ROTC, we had M1 Garands, and we had to learn the manual of arms with the M1, and then the next year we got M14s, and we had to learn the manual of arms with the M14, and with both weapons we had to learn how to break them down, take them apart, clean them, put them back together to the point where we could do it blindfolded. And I think to this day, if somebody handed me an M1 or an M14, I could still go through the manual of arms. I'm not sure if I could break one down and put it back together, but I'm pretty sure I could still do the manual of arms. Because you practiced it, you drilled it over and over and over again until you, you wanted to, to butt-stroke the, the drill sergeant with it. You were just tired of it. But that's the idea in teaching Scripture and in learning to apply Scripture is just drill, drill, drill until it becomes second nature, until that becomes your reflex action when a problem, a difficulty, adversity, whatever the circumstance may be, comes up. And so it's focused on faith, and we have to understand what it means to exercise faith. 
2 Corinthians 5.7 gives us a key passage for understanding this foundational skill for the Christian life. For we walk by means of faith and not by means of sight. We walk by means of faith. That is, faith is directed towards something. If you walk by sight, it's not the seeing that you're depending on. It's what you see, right? There's an object to sight. It's what you're looking at. It is a a phrase that relates to empiricism. The first phrase, we walk by means of faith, works alongside the walking by means of the Holy Spirit over in Galatians 5.16. We're walking in dependence or by means of faith, which is the intermediate means by which we advance in the Christian life. Faith in and of itself is never isolated. So what we learn from this is that faith is the primary basis for that advance of walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. It's not a mystical faith in faith. How many times do you hear folks say, just believe, just have faith. It's all going to be okay. If If you just survive, it's okay. Just have faith. Faith in what? Do you just have faith apart from anything else, just sort of hanging there in a vacuum that I enter into this sphere of faith and I just hang here? No, of course not. In fact, the the term itself doesn't lend itself to that. The term faith, or if you make it a verb, to believe, is a transitive verb. That's grammatical speak for the fact that it always has an object. That means you don't just believe You believe something. There's always a something there to believe. You don't just say, I believe. You're always saying, I believe X. And X is what has the power. X is what has the benefit. X is what has the ability to say. Think about salvation a minute. When you were saved, you put your faith alone in Christ alone. You trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. You didn't just believe and stop there. There was an object to your belief, and that object to your belief is Jesus Christ. And the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and if you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you'll be saved. So there is a proposition. There is a statement there in the Scriptures that you believe. You don't just believe uh, And stop there. The same thing is true after you're saved and you have new life in Christ. The faith that moves you forward in the Christian life also focuses on certain statements, on certain propositions, on certain uh, realities of Scripture. And when we believe those principles or promises or procedures that are specifically stated in Scripture, then that is the means of moving forward. It's not just faith in faith. It's not just some sort of mystical belief that if I just believe that the power is in the faith, that means that faith itself, familiar term for everyone here, faith itself is non-meritorious. The merit isn't in the faith. It's not faith itself that gives you some sort of spiritual quality. It's the object of the faith. When you believe Christ died on the cross for your sins, it's the work of Christ on the cross that saves, not your faith that saves. Christ saves you because He's the object of your faith. So there's always an object to the faith, and it's the object of the faith that has value, significance, and meaning not the faith itself. The faith is simply the conduit. It's simply the pipeline through which the work of the object or the significance of the object or the uh, principle of the object, the truth of the object, is applied. So how do we go through this? It's very simple. I just love the faith rest drill. I mean, this to me is the foundation for everything else. We have to be in fellowship. We're walking by the Spirit. But the key dynamic is that walking by faith, trusting in what God has revealed. So the first step is to claim some uh, portion. Let me I miss this slide. Is the, first, uh, the first step then is to grab onto some portion of Scripture, a promise or a principle 
or a procedure that's defined in Scripture. A promise, a principle, or a procedure that's defined in the Scripture. There are specific promises. We often recite them. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. We claim that as a promise. God, you have promised that if we trust you, then we don't have any cause for fear, and you will strengthen us, support us, and sustain us. Or sometimes it's a principle. We'll see an example of that principle before we finish this evening. Sometimes it's a procedure that Scripture has Outline. For example, in the Old Testament, you had a lot of ritual procedures that were outlined in terms of the uh, practices in the tabernacle and in the temple. So we have certain promises. And this is defined or given to us, 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4. Seeing that His divine power, that's the omnip- omnipotence of God, that God's omnipotence has granted to us, that's free grace, has granted to us on the basis of grace everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now, those two terms relate to life, meaning our physical, biological life, and godliness is the Greek term eusebeia, which actually means your spiritual life. The the English word godliness goes back to a form that meant godlikeness. And see, as we are growing spiritually, we're being transformed transformed into the character of Jesus Christ. We become Christ-like or God-like. So that was called godliness. So the term eusebeia relates to our spiritual life and spiritual growth. So he didn't give us some things, most things, a lot of things. He gave us everything pertaining to life and godliness through... This is the means, the true knowledge of Him who called us by means of His own glory and excellence. And that term, glory and excellence, relates to His character. It summarizes the integrity of God. It summarizes the essence of God. It summarizes everything that God is. And then the next verse, for by these, these what? By these two things, His glory and excellence, that is the sum total of His character, By these He has granted to us, once again, it's grace. He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them, by means of those promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. That's that concept of eusebeia, of being God-like, of uh, where your character is being transformed into the character of Jesus Christ, where God the Holy Spirit is producing that in your life. And it comes by means of those promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Notice how the writer contrasts what God is doing on the one side with the negative in terms of what occurs in the walk by the flesh on the other side. The Scripture constantly juxtaposes truth with error so that we can more clearly understand the truth. It brings it into sharper, uh, tighter focus. But what we're simply looking at this evening for this verse is that it is the promises of God stated here as a means to spiritual growth. And that's what we're saying with the faith rest drill. Very simple. We have to understand the promises, principles, and procedures in the Word of God. And by claiming them, then we advance in our spiritual life. Now, what does it mean to claim a promise? What exactly does that term mean? Well... I ran into this a couple of years ago when I was teaching on the faith rest drill in Ukraine, and the concept of claiming a promise didn't translate real well into a foreign language. Now, we know what that means because it has the idea in English of grabbing hold of a promise and holding on to it. But that really didn't come across too well, and so we had to sit and really think about this concept of claiming a promise for a while to figure out just exactly what it meant. And what it means is to grab hold of a promise, to latch on to a promise and say, this is a promise that God made to me. 
Now that, of course, means that you have made sure that this wasn't a promise he made to Abraham or David, a promise he made to Israel, but it is indeed a promise that comes from God and is directed to a believer of any age or to a believer of the church age. And that you're, you're actually reading your mail and not your neighbor's mail, meaning the Jews. And you're reading your mail and you're saying, God, you made this promise to me and I'm holding you to that. This is my circumstance. This is my situation. You have promised that, that even though I am overwhelmed by fear and worry and anxiety and I feel like I'm at the end of my rope and I can't go any further, what you have told me is that if I do this, if I trust you, if I'm not afraid, then you will sustain me. So I'm claiming that promise right now, God. So that's what that means to claim a promise, is to remind God of his word and to hold on to it and make it a reality in terms of our own life. There are many promises like this that we find in the Word. Psalm 18.2, David writes, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Listen to these words, the images here. He's my rock. And this isn't talking about some little pebble. This is a, a boulder, something you could hide behind and it would provide protection. A fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my buckler, that is a shield, and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. And as I think about this verse, I frequently think about David in those years when he's out with the sheep and he's protecting the sheep before he ever knew he was going to be the anointed king of of Israel, he's out there applying these principles and learning these principles and these promises uh, while he's out with the sheep. And later he writes them down in the forms of these, these hymns that are recorded for us in the Psalms. Psalm 62, 7. In God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Psalm 91.2, I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in Him will I trust. Psalm 91.4, He shall cover thee with His feathers, and under His wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. So God is the God who watches over us, protects us, and we can claim these promises that whenever we feel threatened by the adversities, of life, by whatever the circumstances may be, God is the one who protects us. Now, one particular promise that is familiar to many of us is in 1 Peter 5, 7. The promise is casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. And if we look at the context, we can think through the promise a little bit. So let, let me just put this up here to give us the context. 1 Peter 5, 5, Peter writes, Likewise, you younger people... Submit yourselves to your elders, that is, the mature believers in the congregation. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. In other words, we're mandated to be properly oriented to authority. That's the essence of humility, is to be properly oriented to, to authority because God makes war or is strongly opposed to the arrogant, but he provides grace to the humble. Then in verse 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, because he cares for you. Now this is the promise that we have here, that if we cast our care upon him, he cares for us. And it is frequently used Uh, by us in times of stress, anxiety, worry, concern, and so we need to think about it. Now the verse goes on to say, to pick up the context in the, or the passage goes on to say in the next couple of verses, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now what was the devil's prime sin? It was arrogance. What's the subject that we're talking about in 1 Peter 5? It is being under the authority of God, not being arrogant. And so we are told to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us as a means to avoiding arrogance. And in verse 8, we see that the the devil goes about seeking whom he may devour. And in verse 9, again a command, resist him, steadfast in the faith, that is steadfast in doctrine, which is what we'll cover next time, doctrinal orientation. 
because you know that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. That gives us this, the context. And when we look at the context of a promise, that takes us to the next stage. The first step is we mix faith with the promise. We're saying, God, this is what you said in your word, and I'm going to hold you to it. Cast my care upon you because you care for me. That's the promise. So I'm going to rely upon that. The next stage, so that we can understand it a little more precisely and make it more real in our own soul, is to think through the underlying logic, rationale, or reasoning behind the passage. And we do that simply by reading the passage and thinking about what it says and and perceiving the embedded logic in the text. What is the embedded reasoning that we see within the text? Now, what I suggest at times, and it's a great thing for you to do on your own, is to take out a pen and notebook and paper and write down your thoughts as you think through a passage. Now, you don't have time to do this in the heat of the battle, but you do have time to do it at other times as you go through our promise book. Now, you go through the Scripture and you underline uh, promises. Stop and think about them and write down some thoughts. And let me give you some guidance here. If you, if you can and you have the tools to do so using something like Vines, Expository, Dictionary of New Testament, Old Testament words, or a few other tools that they have available, you can perhaps look up some of the Greek and Hebrew words. Or you can go to notes where uh, you have on Scripture passages, and you can look at the Greek and Hebrew words there, which give you a little fuller understanding of what the passage means. But a lot of times to do this, you don't really need to have an advanced knowledge of the Greek or the Hebrew. You just think through the context. And as we just look at this in the English, we see that we're commanded to be humble. And this idea of humility, back into verse 5, is the main idea of the text. The main command is to humble yourselves... And then you have a participle at the beginning of verse 7, to casting your care upon him. Now, this word for casting in the Greek is the word epirepo, epiripto. And it's an aorist active participle. That means that the action of the participle must precede the action of the main verb. So you have to be casting your care before you can be humble. You have to be casting your care before you can be, can be humble. Casting all your care upon him. Now, the word for casting is a picturesque image. It means to propel something from one place to another, to heave it, to throw it, to, to cast it. It has the idea of transferring something from one place to another. So the idea here is to transfer our concerns and our worries and our fears onto God's back. Just heave them onto God's back. So that God is the one carrying the burden, not us. And he becomes the one responsible for taking care of the situation, not us. He is the one in control. So, and the other thing that we learn here, which you wouldn't pick up in the English, as an adverbial participle in the Greek, it describes the means by which the main command is being fulfilled. So it should be translated, therefore humble yourselves by casting all your care upon him. So the casting is your volitional decision to turn something over to God, to transfer it to his shoulders instead of your shoulders. And by doing that, you're putting yourselves under the authority of God in the situation or in the circumstance. So the first thing we note as we think through the rationale of 5.7 is that we are to humble ourselves by casting something upon him. What we cast is... Merimna in the Greek, it's our anxieties, our worries, our fears, the thing you get up you, when you wake up in the middle of the night and can't go back to sleep and your mind starts racing and wraps itself around this or that or the other thing. You need to go back to 1 Peter 5, 7 and say, casting all my cares upon him because he cares for me. Now, you might have to repeat that 375 times before you start settling down, but that's the key. That's how it works. It's not just a one-shot thing. You know, sometimes we get involved in very intense situations, and it takes a while before our mind really wraps itself around the promise of God. So we cast our anxiety, our worries, we, we uh, heave them upon God because, and that word translated for in the Greek, which I don't have a slide for, is the little word 
hati, which means because. That's the clue to the rationale. Why do we cast our care upon him? Why do we heave all our anxieties on him? Because he cares for us. Because he is concerned about the minutia of our life. I've heard some people say, well, I'm not going to pray about that. That's just too small. I'm not going to bother God about that. What an anthropocentric view of God. God is, there's no detail too small that God can't be as completely concerned about as he is about the big things in life. I mean, that's the hidden text in that, in that statement. I'm not going to, I'm not going to bother with God with that. God wants to be bothered with everything. See, because he's omniscient and he has an infinite hard drive, he can handle every piece of minutia that ever comes through in human history. It's never going to overload the system. He's always going to be able to handle it, and he wants us to bring every care to him. When you say, well, you know, I'm just not going to bother God with that, that's arrogance. And that's counter to this whole process and this whole uh, context. We're to cast our care upon him because he cares for each one of us. And that's the word mela. The two words care in, that we see in English are actually different Greek words. The first word has to do with anxieties, worries, and fears. The second word cares for you is the word that means concern or is deeply interested in something. He is uh, deeply interested in what's going on in our lives. And he cares about every single believer. So that's how we think through the rationale. And we just write that down and we say, okay, now I understand the reasoning here. So that I can not only take the promise and claim it, but I can understand the undergirding rationale or principle here is that because God cares for me as a believer, that every detail in my life is important to him. So I need to go to him constantly and put these things on his back and let him take care of them instead of me because he is the sovereign and not me. And that's where we come to the third stage where we reach conclusions. We reach doctrinal conclusions about what the passage says. What has it said? It has said that we're to take these cares and anxieties and concerns and to completely put them on God's back. Why? Because God cares for me. He cares about my life. He cares about all the little things that wander around in my squirrely little brain and keep me awake at night. God is concerned about everything. And it's also related to humility, that if I'm going to humble myself under God's authority, then that means that I have to put these cares on Him. If I don't, I'm being arrogant and I'm just walking down the path that Satan established in eternity past, past a path of arrogance, the creature trying to live his life independent from, from the Creator. So the conclusion is that I'm going to humble myself by constantly casting my cares and concerns upon Him. So we conclude, in this situation, I'm arrogant if I don't give it over to God. I'm arrogant if I worry. I'm arrogant if I fret over this. I need to place it in God's hands and trust in His power, His provision, His omniscience, and His plan. That is the process. We recognize that God has an eternal plan, and as part of that plan, he's in, he deals with every, every detail. So Isaiah 26.4 states, Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah's everlasting strength. You can start daisy-chaining the promises. Because God cares for me, I can trust in Him. And when I trust in Him, He's going to give me strength in the midst of the situation. Uh, Psalm 56, 3 and 4, when ta- What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. In God I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. So we need uh, sort of a, a, an arsenal of these promises to put things together. Now, we've talked about faith. We've talked about how to mix faith with a promise. We've talked about thinking through the promise so we understand the, the basic reasoning or rationale that undergirds a promise. We've talked about bringing this to a conclusion so it stabilizes our thinking, focuses our mentality on God and His immutable power and not the changing details of life. But now we have to come back to this second term, 
faith rest. What does that mean? Faith is trusting in God's Word. That's always the object of faith. It's not trusting in, in our feelings. It's not trusting in some sort of uh, internal uh, sense of God's truth. It's focusing on the propositions and principles that are given in God's Word. Now, there's two ways in which we do this. One is a passive sense, which I'll just call resting in God's promise. Resting in God's promise may or may not mean doing nothing. Resting in God's promise may mean doing a lot, but we're not going to worry or fret or be concerned or anxious in the consequence. So the passive has the idea that we relax in the situation. We can have a relaxed mental attitude in the midst of the circumstance because we know God's in control. But then there's an active sense. There's an active sense where, in terms of obeying what's going on in the promise, we have to do something. For example, there is a promise and a procedure outlined in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, that's the procedure. But we have to do something. When we trust the reality of that promise, that God is faithful and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that's a promise. That if we do X, that is admit or acknowledge, God will do Y. That's the promise. But we have to do something, don't we? We don't just trust God to forgive us. That gets into mysticism. That was a problem with Keswick theology. I'm just going to trust God to cleanse me. No, we have to do something. We have to confess the sins. There is an active instruction that we have to follow. And it's not works. It's just doing what God said to do. And we're resting upon him to provide the solution. So we have these two circumstances in faith rest. There's a passive sense where we rest and relax in his power, and we have a relaxed mental attitude, and then an active sense in which we do whatever is implied in the promise. Now let's look at an example from the Old Testament to see how this was accomplished. And turn with me in the Old Testament to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17 this is a story that's familiar to many people, young and old. I guess today, as we live in an era of biblical illiteracy, maybe it's not as familiar, but it should be. And that is the episode of David fighting the giant Goliath. And it's one of the greatest examples in the Old Testament of a believer using the faith rest drill. I want to start by going directly to the heart of the confrontation when David's out in the middle of the, uh, of the valley and he is about to engage in battle with Goliath the Philistine. And David says to the Philistine, You can't come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. Not to mention the fact that you're armored from head to toe. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of the armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel." And that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. Now, what's the rationale in that last verse? If you're sharp, you caught it. Watch for those words, for and because. The battle is the Lord's. There's the principle. The battle is the Lord's uh, comes after the word for. I'm going to do this, this, and this. I have confidence in my victory. Why? Because the battle is the Lord's. And that's the fundamental principle that David is applying here. But it's more profound than just understanding that principle. Because the reason he can go into this battle and trust God in this battle is because of prior preparation and a foundational understanding of God's promises. So let's go back to the beginning of the chapter and just briefly work our way through what's going on here. 
The Philistines were never defeated by the Jews under the judges during the period of the judges. God continued to give the Philistines dominance over Israel because they are under the fourth cycle of discipline and they are being tested by their enemies. And because Israel never came to a position of complete repentance as they had in the various other cycles of the judges. So the Philistines continue to threaten Israel's south western flank and now they have invaded and they're in the hill country of Judah and they're engaged in a battle and the battle itself it it reminds us of things that we read about in uh, the Odyssey uh, or the Iliad rather and the battle for Troy and that's because the Philistines were part of the migration of Greek sea peoples throughout the ancient world and so often they would engage in uh, battles where champions uh, would be would come out from each army and they would do battle uh, for the whole army. And so the armies of the Philistines gather at a place called Sokah, which is about 14 miles west of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is also known as the city of David, right? It's the birthplace of the Messiah, but it's the city of David. And that's where David lives with his father, Jesse. And it's out from Bethlehem that he watches the sheep. So they gather at Sokah, and they're camped between Sokah and Ezekah at a place called Ephes Damim, which is three miles northeast of Sokah. And they have they're at the Valley of Elah, and they have the Philistines on one side of the valley, up on the hillside, and they have... Uh, uh, the, the J- Jewish army under Saul on the other side. And they, they have this champion named Goliath from Gath. His height was six cubits and a span. That means he's nine feet, nine inches tall. Now, that's not exaggeration. But there's something interesting going on in this passage that few people bring out. Goliath is said to be from Gath in a couple of different places here. And when David goes, just to kind of fast forward through the story, David has been there at the beginning before the champion came out. Then he went back to deal with the sheep. And his three oldest brothers are there in the army. And his dad, Jesse, said, well, go find out what the latest news from the front is. I'm going to send you some cheese for their commander, some food for them, and go check it out. So David comes. And he takes the supplies and leaves them with his supply keeper in verse 22. And he runs to the army. He's just excited. He wants to see where the action is. And he greets his brother, expecting to hear great news of how they've won the battle. And while he's talking with them, the champion, the Philistine of Gath. So the Holy Spirit keeps bringing us back to this little note that he's a Philistine of Gath. Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. When he spoke according to the same words, and he's just challenging the nation to come forth, and he's taunting the Philistines that no one can come forth. This is given back in verses 8, 8, 9, and 10. And he defies the armies of Israel, give me a man that we can fight together. So as he comes through, every day for 40 days now he's been throwing out this challenge, and Saul and the Jewish army have just been quaking in their boots. They've got this circumstance they don't know how to handle. It's overwhelming. They feel defeated. We don't have anybody who can take on the giant. And no matter what it may be, you know, we all have applications where there are circumstances, situations in life that we feel just way too much for us and we can't handle. But that's not really a a point of contact here. This is, goes, it's more profound than that. When David hears him, listen to David's response. In verse 26, Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for this for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? There's two key words in that, in that statement that tell us how David is thinking. The first is he refers to the Philistine as an uncircumcised Philistine. The second thing is he's defying the armies of the living God. If you go back in the earlier part of 
of Samuel, the Ark of the Covenant got captured by the Philistines, and they took it and they stored it in the Temple of Dagon. They said, oh, great, we've defeated this, this god of the Jews, which is just some, some minor deity, and we're going to show that we're, our god's better than their god, so we're going to put it in the temple right up in front of the temple of the statue of Dagon to show Dagon's superiority. And the next morning they came in, and Dagon, the statue of Dagon is now down on its face, bowing in obedience to the Ark of the Covenant. Well, so they couldn't handle that, so they straightened it back up, and they left. And the next morning they come in, and now the temple's down, the hands are cut off, and the feet are cut off. And God is showing that He's the one, even though He allowed Israel to be defeated by the by the uh, Philistines, God is the one who's in, in charge. God's the one who's in control. And God is a living God. The God of Israel is a living God. And the idols of the Philistines are dead gods. They're pagan gods. So that's the, what lies behind the phrase the living God. But the term uncircumcised is the real key that unlocks the passage. What was circumcision? Circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Not the Mosaic covenant, but the Abrahamic covenant. And there are three things that are crucial to understanding the Abrahamic covenant. And those three things we keep drilling are land, seed, and blessing. And the land promise was that this land, the land of the Canaanites, was given to Israel forever and ever, and they had a right to this particular land. So when David is saying this is an uncircumcised Philistine, he's saying he has no right to this land. God has given the land to us. That's the promise he's going back to is the Abrahamic covenant. So he's got a promise and he's got a principle wrapped up there that this land is our land and there's no uncircumcised individual that has a right to come here and take it away from us. Furthermore, if we look at this phraseology that that, uh, he's, he's from Gath, which is pointed out several times, and we do a little studying around in the background of the Old Testament, what we realize is that there was a group of people who inhabited the land before Joshua brought the armies in to take it for Israel. The Canaanites lived there, and there were a lot of different folks who lived in the land. There were the the, uh, Amorites, and there were the Hittites, and there were several other different groups, the Jebusites, all who lived in, in this land of Canaan, who were all part of this perverse culture that God said needed to be wiped out. And among them was a group of people called the Sons of Anak, A-N-A-K. They were also called the Anakim. And they were giants. And this is why, if you remember, back in Numbers uh, 14 or 15, when the 12 spies went into the land, 10 of them came back and said, Oh, we can't win. The people are too numerous. The cities are too big. And they are giants in the land. Big giants. Now, we know that they had a cousin... Og of Bashan was one of the Rephidim, and the Rephidim are related to the Anakim. And, and Og, as the king of, the, of, the king of Bashan, had a bed that was six feet wide and thirteen and a half feet long in order to handle him. And there's some disagreement among the scholars whether that's his bed or his coffin. But we don't know his size, but he was probably pretty close to 10 or 11 feet tall in order to have a bed that size or a, a coffin that size. So all of the, the Rephidim, the Og and Bashan, were all wiped out by the Jews when they came in the initial conquest. But when they got into the main part of the land itself, they didn't kill all of the Anakim. Some of them escaped. Guess where they went? They went to a little town over there in Philistia called Gath. And so when we're told that Goliath, this nine foot nine inch, Man from is from Gath. It's presupposing that you know something about Joshua and what happened in the conquest, and that the sons of Anak went there. So he's not really a Philistine. Probably been, there was probably some interbreeding there. He's two or three generation immigrant, but he is a descendant of the Canaanites that were supposed to be completely annihilated. So David's thinking so doctrinally here. I mean, he says, this guy's uncircumcised. He's a descendant of these giants. We have a divine mandate to kill this guy. So we just have to trust in the promise of God and go kill him. God's going to protect us. It doesn't matter how tall he is, how much armor he has, how advanced his technology. 
All we have to do is rest and trust in God's promise. I'm not even going to take Saul's armor because that's going to imply that I'm trusting in some technique or some capability other than God's Word. I want to make sure that I'm trusting in God's Word and the battle is the Lord's. And so David utilizes the faith rest drill. He understands the the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. He understands the principle that undergirds it, and he reaches a conclusion. The battle is the Lord's. And so he goes into battle with this nine foot nine inch giant. Now, David is not a rookie at this. David's not some little shepherd boy. That's how it's always presented. We know he's not because he was prepared. See, when David faced the giant, he had been exercising the faith rest drill many times before. And when he first appeared to Saul, Saul said, Okay, that's great. I'm glad I've got a volunteer, but you're kind of young and you're a rookie and you're just, you're not even a private first class in the army. But what kind of credentials do you have? And so David said, Look, I was a servant. I I was a shepherd, and I kept my father's sheep. This is in verse 34. And when a, and it should be understood to say, whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Now, he doesn't have a 30 caliber rifle with him. He doesn't have a broadsword. He's got a shepherd's staff and a sling. And David, as a young man, now, now, in order to do what he did here, he's not doing this like Samson through some sort of supernatural power. He's doing that through his own physical capabilities, obviously protected by the Lord, but he's got some tremendous musculature and agility in order to do that. That's why he has to be at least 16, 17, 18 years of age in order to to uh, pull this sort of thing off. But he has learned the principle that I'm supposed to do my job is under the Lord. My job is to protect the sheep. That means I have to take care of the sheep and protect them even when an aggressive animal such as a lion or a bear comes into the flock. I have to chase him down. And he does hand-to-hand combat. I'm going to grab the lion by the beard and I'm going to then beat him to death with a rod. Now, how many of you all are willing to trust God to that extent? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But this was basic training for, for David. Was handling the, he did this again and again. He didn't just do this once. The implication here is he did this several times. But he's applying the faith rest drill to each of these situations. So when Goliath comes along, he's prepared himself through that constant practice. So when the larger test comes, he's able to handle it because he's already been trusting God and he knows God's going to protect him. And then he knows the word of God. He knows the promise and principles and he's able to come to a conclusion and he's able to trust God to defeat Goliath. So he comes out and he sounds cocky and arrogant, but he's not. He knows exactly what the promise is, so he has complete confidence in God. And that's how we are to be. When we understand the promise of God and the principles and we apply them, we can completely relax. See, David's totally relaxed. He, is just, he, he knows that God's going to give him the victory over, over Goliath, that he's going to kill Goliath, and he's going to cut his head off, and he doesn't have a doubt in the world. Now, somebody says, well, he took five stones. Do you think he was going to miss? No, he knew Goliath had four brothers, so he's prepared for the contingency. And he's going to t- he has one stone for each of the brothers, and he knows he's not going to miss. And the tremendous confidence, because he trusts God. That's the faith rest drill, and that's what we are to implement as we walk by means of the Spirit and go forward. But as I pointed out, the faith rest drill itself focuses and apprehends, and and the object of faith is the Word. And that's our next foundational uh, skill, and that is what we call doctrinal orientation. So we'll come back to that next Sunday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for your Word, that we can rely upon it, uh, that even if... It costs us our life. We know we can trust you. That was the statement of the three young men who were thrown into the fiery furnace as they confronted Nebuchadnezzar. Even though God takes our life, we will continue to trust in him.
And so we trust in you because your word is true, your word is right. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this evening that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they might recognize from the things that we have said tonight that Jesus Christ provides a perfect salvation because it's based upon your character and your power and it's based on your grace. And that our salvation is not based on who we are or what we do. It is based on your promise, your power, and your provision of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ when he died on the cross for our sins. And that salvation is not based on doing certain things or following certain ritual, but it's based upon simply believing that Jesus Christ died for us. If you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, this is your opportunity to do so. And at that instant, God in his omniscience knows that you have trusted Christ as your Savior, and you are regenerate, you're saved, and that can never be taken away from you. Father, we thank you for the things we've studied this evening and pray that you would challenge us with them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.